Hey, everybody, and welcome to SNL Funhouse, a Saturday Night Live recap podcast. My name is Mike Bloom, talking about episode 16, the return of Bill Hader to Studio 8H, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Mario Lanza. Mario, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Michael. Oh, so kind. You're very uh, Canadian of you. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's do it over. We'll, we'll tape that over. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. We'll get Arcade Fire to play us in as it cuts into the middle of their songs. Uh, yeah, yeah, so a very interesting episode. We were sort of talking about this before we recorded. I'm still trying to figure out where I want to put this because here's the thing. I had a lot of fun with this episode, but this episode was kind of stupid. And I mean this in the best way possible. There were a lot of... You know, we we talked about how the writing might not be the most top tier this particular season, but considering some of the premises that were in this episode, it really was not up to snuff, but I feel like between the performances and just the things they were bringing out were just so silly, so goofy, that I found myself laughing a lot more than I have in maybe the previous, maybe since the Will Ferrell episode. So I'd be intrigued to hear from you, especially given your opinions on Bill Hader, what you thought of this episode overall. I will say that I laughed a lot at this episode, but I don't necessarily feel real clean about myself afterwards at some of the stuff I was laughing at just because, and I'll get into this more in the podcast, that I never liked the era that Bill Hader started. And it's not really his fault. I just didn't like the mentality around the show at that point where it was all, let's try to get all the characters to break. Let's do a lot of improv. Let's you know try to get the characters to crack. And it was just the audience would just eat that stuff up. And I never liked that era. It felt very unprofessional to me. So that was kind of what I would say about the show. It was kind of like a throwback to that era. They really tried to go that type of show again. And again, the audience ate it up. The audience loved this kind of stuff. And I know this is going to be a very popular episode. I'll admit that I laughed. I thought it was funny. But I will still say I like the Sterling K. Brown episode and the uh, Natalie Portman one more than this one. Although this wasn't a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination. It just kind of was a flashback to an era of SNL that I never really uh, respected all that much. And I, on the other hand, really did love that era. I do agree that, you know, especially with something under the Californians is a good example of what you're talking about, where it was clearly done more so for the cast themselves than it was for the audience, but that sort of eked out into the live studio audience. And I can say that I will talk about the Californians. I'll be intrigued to get your opinion as a native of California, because I know that uh, the Rich Tackenberg, formerly of this podcast, he's a Californian, and he loathed the Californians <laughs> to death. But I, I enjoyed that era just because there was a lot of silliness and fun to it. I think you talked about this. Uh, we talked about this actually the past couple episodes, ever since the Natalie Portman episode, about how, you know, when the cast has fun, I feel like that really shows and ups the sketch a little bit. And again, I'll say that with any other host, a lot of these sketches would absolutely tank. But I will say that Bill Hader, who once again comes back and shows how much of a chameleon he is as a performer between the myriad accents and wigs and outfits they put him in, even over the course of his monologue... It really shows just how adept of a performer he is, even if he took him a little while to realize that the commercials after the monologue are completely fake. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, I think he did a good job. I think it was all around a success. And again, I have no doubt this is going to be ranked as one of the most, most popular episodes of the season. So, yeah, we'll just get into it and see what we have to say about it. Yes, yeah, so let's get into the cold open here. We start once more with Anderson Cooper 360, even though last week it cut pretty, you know, I, actually, I think it was The Bachelor. I'm I think I'm talking, talking about uh, two weeks ago when they started with Anderson Cooper 360. But we live in Anderson Cooper 360 as we trout out a few appearances here. Uh, first, we've got a regular in Jeff Sessions coming back talking about uh, McCabe's firing and about maybe the 
the uh, axe that is looming over his opossum-like head. But I think the big thing that's been talked about are the myriad cameos during this episode, or at least this cold open. First, we have the return of John Goodman as Rex Tillerson, someone I feel like we haven't seen since maybe, I want to say, like, the Casey Affleck episode back in uh, the end of 2016. Obviously, Rex Mm -hmm. Tillerson in the news since he was recently fired, so it was good to see Goodman, 12-time host, back. And then we get... Bill Hader and uh, as Anthony Scaramucci, who made an appearance in the uh, SNL Summer Weekend Updates. And also uh, Fred Armisen as Michael Wolf, our author of Fire and Fury, who appeared earlier on in this season. What did you feel about this cameo-heavy cult open, especially with how politically affiliated it was for you? <laughs> well, you basically called this last week, right? Bill Hader's coming back. Does that mean cameos? Because that's yeah. really what SNL does these days. Uh, yeah, it's... I mean, it was a... Again, this is the same thing I really say about SNL in general, that these uh, political openings that are very topical, I understand that they need to do them because they need to comment on the news. But this is the kind of sketch like when you rerun the show in 5, 10, 15 years, this is going to be the one that gets cut. Like because this will make no – this will have no relevance to anybody and nobody will give a crap about it in 10 years. And that's – when I watch SNL, that's – I always try to explain my mentality. I always try to think long term. I like things that aren't dated that – will be universal and timeless that will always hold up on reruns like this is i understand why snl has to do stuff like this but this is an absolutely forgettable opening that will be cut in 10 years so i don't have a whole lot to say about it other than yeah the cameos you knew that was coming i did appreciate john goodman breaking the sugar glass in his hand that was kind of a cool little moment yeah and uh Am I, I can't be the only one who thinks this Jeff Sessions impression is played out, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to approach, like, I think they're, the writers are having fun with him, and hence the sort of weird rodential-like direction they went with this character, but we've seen Sessions a good amount of times, though, and as we're seeing, Kate does a great job of playing a bunch of different members of the Trump administration, we're going to see one later on in this episode, that... I do feel like we don't necessarily need to see Sessions. She Sessions has now ranked second behind Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump as maybe the 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 more overplayed sides of that administration. Yeah, and again, I just it's I I mean I'm beating the same drum every week, but I just miss cold openings that are going to be iconic that will be forever remembered in these reruns, and that's it's just something that this era doesn't especially aim for. I can tell. Well, for what it's worth, though, I thought that this had a great energy to it. You know, I feel like uh, John Goodman had a very different take on Rex Tillerson. Again, from what I remember with him appearing last time, it was uh, he was you know very uh, like you know foghorn leghorn rich oil tycoon, <laughs> and here he's showing much more grim anger. On his face. The breaking the sugar glass, I agree, was a really uh, fun physical moment. I feel like the Trump is a moron thing. It made <laughs> sense from a, from a, you know, a, a news perspective, but it sort of came out of nowhere. I think uh, Fred Armisen's Michael Wolf might be my favorite, just because I thought it was a really fun characterization. I could understand what Bill was doing with Anthony Scaramucci, and it was fun. It was very, uh, you know, he loves playing Italian guys between that and Vinny Vidici. Uh, so I, I I loved when he went to, goes into, like, this Italian gobbledygook. But something about Fred Armisen's, like, just throwing out complete fibs and then asking if it's true, he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes, I mean, yeah. Uh, th- that's the type of Fred Armisen humor that I really enjoy. So he might have been my favorite cameo of this cold open. I will agree with you in that. I did appreciate. Again, he always makes odd acting choices. That's something that Fred does, has historically always done. Just He makes odd kind of 90-degree uh, character choices that you wouldn't expect a normal actor to do. So I, I always appreciate watching Fred. He's going to do something interesting whether you like it or not. Uh, Let's go to the monologue here. Third week in a row, very unconventional monologue. But I don't know. 
this might be, ironically enough, because it's an alumni coming out, this might be my least favorite of the three. Just because I mm-hmm. felt like it was a little... We talk countless times in the past couple weeks about how the monologue is often the last thing written before the show happens. This definitely feels like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt a little scattered between him just sort of like throwing in all these, oh, I didn't know this, and I didn't know that, and I didn't know this. I feel like he did a good job of selling it, and I think it certainly got a pop at the end when they had him do a quick change and just segue right into the Californians, which we'll talk about. But outside of that really fun aspect at the end, not much to write home about in my opinion. Yeah, although I don't think that should be that surprising because, I mean, the last thing you want Bill Hader to do is come out and just talk as himself. That's not really what he does, and that's not to his discredit. That's like... He's not the type of person I would have expected would become a multiple time host on SNL just because the monologue is going to be his weak part. There's nothing about him that's really inherently just interesting as a as a person. And I would, I'd always say the same thing about like Phil Hartman, like Hartman would come out there and talk as himself. And like it wasn't interesting because he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that should surprise you that that the monologue is the is the weakest part, because that's not what Bill Hader does. So. I, I totally agree with you. This is an absolutely forgettable monologue. But I, again, I can't hold that against him because this isn't what he does for a living. You want to see him go into the characters and sketches. And so this is just something he has to get out of the way to get to the Bill Hader stuff. Do you like, you know, again, we talked about how the show has been getting increasingly maybe meta with some of this stuff. Did you like the idea of them actually doing the quick change and going right into the Californians from there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's different. That's, I mean, like you said, you just wanted to see something different in the monologue. That was something different. So kudos to the writers for actually putting in an effort here on the monologue with someone who was not going to be a strong monologue to begin with. But yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. It was a interesting segue there. Yeah, I really, again, that really sort of saved it for me was like the, them actually doing the quick change on the stage, I thought was really fun. And it, again, brought some nice energy into what some people might groan about and some people might cheer about. It segues directly into the Californians. Unfortunately, no commercial that uh, the audience could get tricked into actually being real. We'll save that for the end of the show. Mario, what is your opinion on the Californians as a sketch? Because this is like quintessential what you're talking about, a type of sketch where it's really more so for the cast members, but the studio audience at least gets into you know fits of giggles when they're watching the cast members break and talk in weird voices. Yeah, did you hear the scream at the start when they announced it was the yeah. Californians? That was ridiculous. That was the loudest audience pop I've heard in a long time. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> yeah, it's when, you know, I am one of the, like I have always said, I've been writing about SNL for so long and just following the internet, and I've been part of message boards since like 96. I am well aware that the Californians is a very, very polarizing sketch. It's not one of these things that everybody loves. It's a... Uh, as many people that think it's the funniest thing ever, there's just as many who think it's the worst thing SNL has ever done. So if Rich hated it, I understand you probably hated it too. It's just one of these things that's it's very specific to a certain type of comedy. And uh, I loved it when it first came out. It's in my SNL Funny 115 of my favorite 115 moments uh, between 2000 and 2015. So I loved it at the start. It was just a a clever idea and just this I just love people doing this stupid California accent and the directions is the thing that really gets me because as a Californian those most of those directions are accurate which is the funny thing they're actually giving legitimate directions which is how people talk around here so I loved it at first I never thought there was a need for it after about maybe the third or fourth time mm-hmm. and what have they done it like 78 times by now I kind of forget I lost count but yeah 
Yeah, it's, I, I was excited that it was gonna, they were going to do it last night, but it wasn't so much that I thought they'd do anything new with it and that it would be fun. It's just I wanted to see the internet meltdown the next day because I know how much people hate this sketch. Yeah, and for me, I, I think it's one of those things where like it was inoffensive to me the first few times, but they kept doing it, which sort of makes you throw up your hands in rage and say, like, why do you keep wanting to do this? You have yeah. all these other you know recurring sketches that you want to bring back but for what it's worth since it's been a while since we've seen it you know i was okay with this one there was a little bit of change up you know you have kate mckinnon replacing vanessa as a maid unfortunately i think she was a week off on uh doing a drop-in cameo (laughs) because i feel like had she not gone in last week as dawn uh she definitely would have dropped in here as rosa the maid and i do like you know the little variances they made like when they do the the big stinger, and they cut to everyone making weird faces. They cut to Vanessa's photo. Uh, and then I think my favorite might have just been the image of Pete Davidson as a Californian, because I don't think he's ever done it before, with his, like, pasty white skin on top of this man bun hair with this, like, duster on and a loose scarf. Yeah. I have to say one thing. I have to defend the idea behind the Californians. I know people hate it. It's a fantastic idea for a sketch. And what really killed it over the years is the same thing that kills many SNL sketches is that when they repeat it, they don't change it where it's just the exact same beats every single time. So I will forever defend the idea of the sketch. That's a hilarious concept. And that's why I always put it in my, in my funny one fifteen. but yeah, it's just the same thing over and over. And I have to say, like Kate McKinnon, one of the greats of SNL, especially of her era, just an absolute standout. She could not really do the California accent, which killed me. Because, like, how could she not do this one? She does every other accent on the face of the earth. But, yeah, she. it was funny that of a Californian sketch, which is weak to begin with, she was actually the weak link in a weak premise. So that's one a rare misfire for Kate McKinnon on this one. Now, Mario, do you use Google Maps or Waze to navigate? I'm old school. I don't use either. I use my knowledge of roads and my topography of where the mountains are to figure my way around. Wow. So you have a topographical map of everything? Yeah, I do. Exactly. No, but I just, I I hate relying on GPS. If I have to, I'll use Google Maps. But in general, I absolutely hate that because I happen to be inherently good at driving directions. I know how to get around and it bugs me that they take away my skill by making everybody good at that now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everyone's on an equal playing field. You are no longer special, Mario. Exactly. This is like the Incredibles. Now we're giving out awards for everybody for racing. It kills me. Yes. When everyone has directions, nobody will. Uh, all right. Let, let, let's go. I have to, to say, wait. Go ahead. Yeah. Before we say, I just have to say, Californian sketches were notorious for not having an ending. This one was bad even by California standards. They just stopped. Yeah. Although but, I will say it, it, did, it didn't stretch on for 20 minutes like a lot of them do. So I guess we should, uh, small favors. It's weird though, yeah, because I, I think we're used to three mini scenes, but here we only got two. And usually I guess the third one is I think usually punctuated by Keenan being in there and doing his weird mm-hmm. sort of California surfer voice. But yeah, it was a little surprising to put two in there. Maybe they just sort of were like, okay, we got to do something California. And maybe there was a celebrity cameo that got cut. Maybe that's where John Hamm was supposed to appear. I know that I got asked about this online that John Hamm randomly showed up for the good nights, uh, but he wasn't in the show at all. Maybe he was in one here that got cut. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, it was a little, little short, oddly enough, for typical Californian fare. Maybe he was the oceanographer in Fresno. <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, let, <laughs> let's move on to our game show sketch, surprisingly not hosted by Bill Hader, considering he was sort of like the go-to game host sketch, uh, games, yeah, game, game show host for uh, his time on the show. Kiss me, I'm Irish. And if you're talking about trotting out accents, we got a bunch here between Bill, Beck Bennett, 
Kate, Cecily, and A.D. Bryan, who turns out to be our straight woman here, as the concept of the sketch is that uh, two of the three bachelorettes are cousins of the main bachelor, but that is good for them. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. This this was my personal favorite sketch of the evening, even though, again, it has no ending. And it really bothers me that they do this with these game shows. It's a great concept, and then they just stop it. But this reminded me a little bit of the Girlfriend talk show, which makes me think uh, A.D. Bryant must have written this or had a hand in it, because it's the same concept where she's the straight woman trying to play the straight, and everyone else, there's craziness around her, and they all know each other with preconceived relationships. And that's that's why it kind of reminded me of the same premise. And again, I... I am a huge fan when they trot Kate out there in an accent. I, Like I said, I don't always like Cecily on the show, but when they throw her into an accent and she's just doing like a straight character in an accent, she's fantastic. And I loved this one. I loved almost everything about this sketch other than the ending, which they just threw away. Yeah, when this started, I was a little... I wouldn't say unnerved, but I was a little on edge just because, like, this is a little bit, even for, you know, 11.45 Eastern time, this is still a little dicey stuff to work with that, like, <laughs> oh, great, this girl's my cousin. Oh, great, she's off to a great start. But for some reason, even though they were sort of hitting the same beats over and over again, I just really enjoyed the performances overall, especially I feel like AD made this. Uh, yeah. First off, I love the introduction of her character that, you know, she's Molly, she's Irish-American, and she's studying here because she likes stones. And I also think it was interesting that she was the second one, because I feel like the straight woman is either, like, the first one or the third one. And so I liked, you know, Cecily becomes the big character initially, and then it turns out that Kate is a cousin as well. <laughs> but the, just the running logic of, like, oh, they're both off to good starts, and Beck saying, you know, uh, it's very rare that with two cousins and one non-cousin on the panel that the non-cousin wins. There was some... Especially in these first couple sketches, there was some awkward camera work. Like, there were a couple yeah. times when the camera would focus on Beck when AD was talking. I know Cecily messed up a line where I think the line was supposed to be, you know, we just had sex, we didn't get married. Uh, but then she said, you know, we didn't have sex and then had to go back and redo it. I think my other favorite part might be uh, Bill going over the list of uh, the list of side effects from inbreeding. My favorite might have been one big toe. <laughs> Here's the line that I liked when uh, Beck introduced them. The three Irish girls, each one as beautiful as their skin is bright red under their makeup. Yeah. Or uh, I, I think I like to kids say, you know, I'm a good Catholic girl, which means I love God, but God hates me. So there were a lot of, like, fun things in here. I also think between this and the uh, Saoirse Ronan episode when they had, like, the, uh, the Lingus Airways that – SNL has no idea what Irish stereotypes are. They're just going to make them as weird as possible that they carry dogs on planes and that they all have <laughs> sex with their cousins. Well, admittedly, it's a tiny little island. So, I mean, y it wouldn't be a stretch for the imagination that inbreeding may have been a problem over the years. So I I'm sure there may be some historic precedents in that. Yeah. Uh, so let's cut to our <laughs> next sketch here. Horace. Now, this is an example of, again, a really silly stupid premise but for some reason the physical work especially from bill Hader, just made this a riot in my opinion so essentially cecily's coming over for girls night where they play uno such a weird idea <laughs> uh but basically, that's what the irish do mike that's what the irish do they play uno yeah, are we just are we going along with the fact that each sketch sort of carries over into the next? That this is one long continuous time frame. <laughs> yes, it's like a Sgt. Pepper album. There's unbanded songs that all go together. So, uh, and Horace was uh, alive long enough to remember Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band back when it was big. Essentially, the the onus of the sketch is that Cecily is dating an older man. I saw this joke coming from a mile away. I don't know if you did when they said older man that he was going to be 
decrepit. Uh, he's a man named Horace, and the first half of the sketch is essentially him bumbling around with the uh, with the, the motor scooter. The second half is about how he took his Cialis, and now Cecily feels like she needs to have sex with him right now. And then it kind of combines the two, where they are just sort of uh, jutting around the set in this motor scooter, making all sorts of havoc happen. Yeah, and it's it's one of those, again, it got a big pop from the audience, and it's a great laugh, and it's it, it, the absolute thing I was talking about in my opening. I kind of felt cheap about this sketch, because it was clearly a lot of it was improvised, where they're just like, send Bill out there, and Bill, start doing crazy things and try to get Cecily to laugh. And again, he did. Cecily is an absolute pro. She never cracks, ever. And he got her to crack like five different times in this sketch, which leads me to believe it was all just improvised, that he's making it up as he goes along, which, again, is good for a laugh, but it feels very unprofessional when I see it on a show like this. And that, that's the stuff I'm talking about from that era where they were constantly doing that, trying to break, especially trying to break Bill Hader because he has a horrible time not keeping a straight face. So, yeah, I will say I laughed most of the way through this sketch but afterwards i felt a little cheap about it i'm like i can't believe that snl got me on that one again because i i i i try to appreciate a little higher standard of the writing than this sketch yeah this is definitely not the higher standard but that being said i don't know i I enjoyed it because it at least also symbolizes to me the live kinetic energy that comes with saturday night live you know Mm -hmm. with its with its reliance on pre-tapes and some of the other stuff sometimes you miss these times where like things can be a little off or things can be so wild and not to say that i love the sketches where jimmy fallon breaks every single time but i i thought it was fun at least to see you know him nearly knocked down the wall when he first came in. I think my favorite might have been him, you know, when he says, oh, wait, he backs up the scooter and just pushes <laughs> Melissa in the chair and the table all the way to the corner to the point of where she is just, like, in fits in the corner, and that makes him break. Uh, I mean, they were they completely fell apart by the end of this, much like the sketch probably after Bill Hader drew, drove a full <laughs> scooter into it. But this was one where just afterwards I'm like, that was completely ridiculous. Yeah. And again, I will always try to justify my my views by saying I am a comedy writer. What I do is I write stuff for a living. I work very hard at trying to create comedy through writing. And this is the opposite of a writer's sketch. Like there's nobody wrote the sketch. It's just Bill Hader does funny stuff. So that's that's why I I kind of bristle at stuff like this, because this is absolutely not a writer's sketch. And it's the antithesis of what I try to do. Well, let's talk about this next one, then, because I feel like that might be in the same line here. We have a typical uh, our traditional screen tests. Uh, we've done it with Back to the Future. I think we did it with Star Wars. We did it with The Lion King a few weeks ago. Now we have Jurassic Park for its 25th anniversary. And, man, they really trotted out a lot, a lot of impressions. And maybe that's because <laughs> Bill Hader was out here, and Bill Hader is probably one of the best impressionists that SNL has ever seen. Uh, what were the highlights for you? Because we got a whole, like, murderer's row of cast members doing impressions here. Yeah, it's funny that, uh, you know, you say Bill Hader is one of the greatest impressionists in SNL history, and I won't dispute that. He's great, but he gets upstaged in this one. Um, I would say my two favorite are the two Kate McKinnon ones, the Lisa Kudrow one that comes out of nowhere, (laughs) and then the Jodie Foster one killed me when she's doing Silence of the Lambs. That was so good. And the third one I would say that really jumped out was uh, Heidi. Again, I can't say enough about Heidi doing Drew Barrymore, although... She didn't. There, there's kind of the the running joke when you do an impression of Drew Barrymore. You just basically talk like you just had a stroke, and that's kind of the Drew Barrymore impression. She, she doesn't do that to that extent, but she had the voice down and the mannerisms down so perfectly. Like it was just those were the three that really jumped out at me. Not that Hater did a bad job, but those three really popped out. 
Well, I wonder if it's because we've seen all these Hater impressions before. We had the Alan Alda, who might have been my favorite part of the Back to the Future screen test with him as mm-hmm. uh, Doc Brown. We had him as Clint Eastwood, and who else did we have him as? Uh, there was one more. Pacino. Pacino, yeah. So he, we've seen him do all those, so it's not like we've seen anything new. Whereas I totally agree with both of those Kate McKinnon impressions, especially the Jodie Foster one where she goes, <laughs> this is the happiest I've ever been. Today's my birthday. Yeah, Jodie Foster as Mr. DNA, which is the perfect per- character for her to play. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing as well is that, like, I feel like the, the the if there was, like, writing for this sketch, like, they kept circling around the same things. I mean, I'm counting uh, a, at least 20 different 20. impressions, which is insane. That's an yeah. insane amount of impressions for, like, a three-minute sketch. And so they, they kept circling back around to, like, the same Dr. Sadler stuff. Some other ones that I enjoyed, for some reason... I don't know if Keenan did a good Sinbad impression, but I loved his stupid Triceratops joke. That really made me <laughs> laugh. Well, yeah, I, two things I wanted to add is that, you, like you said, there's over 20 impressions in this one sketch. And it's funny when you go back and you look at the first sketch they ever did like this, which I believe was the Star Wars auditions with Kevin Spacey. Yes, as uh, he did, he did who, Bob Hope and he did... Uh, no, not Bob Hope, he did... Uh, no, he did Walter Matthau, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Yeah, and then Barbara Streisand was on a gas dire, like... Barbara, you're going to want to take that way down. Like, what's funny about that sketch is there's only, I think, six impressions in that entire sketch, and it's a, it's like a two-parter. It's either six or eight, and it's mm-hmm. a two-part sketch. And this one, there's 20 in a one-part sketch, so it's just one of these things, like, they're throwing as many things at the wall here as they can. And again, I don't think most of these impressions really deserve to be here. Like, there's some that added nothing. The Wesley Snipes one, I thought, I mean, I, I, it would, they added nothing to the sketch, and they don't even talk about the movie. It's one of these things, as these impression sketches go along, they... They draw. They move more further and further away from actually auditioning for the movie, mm-hmm. and so that's one of my issues with it. But again, there was some some good stuff in here, some not so good stuff. I I didn't really see their need see their uh, any. Sorry, let me do that again. Yeah. I didn't see any reason for there to be a Gwen Stefani impression in there, but. Gwen Stefani screaming in horror was worth it just for that part. Ugh. Yeah, and I mean, you can't do an impression sketch without having Melissa Villasenor in there at some point. I will also give a kudos to Pete Davidson trotting out a pretty good Adam Sandler impression. Yes, and did you catch, this is my little SNL in-joke, did you catch Adam Sandler wearing the red-hooded sweatshirt? I appreciated yes. the little detail there. And then him sort of singing uh, the, the Thanksgiving song about, uh, about T-Rex. I thought that was yeah. fun moments like that. And one more thing I got to point out, Leslie Jones, of course, notorious for breaking character anytime she has to talk. Even in this one, she broke character and it was a taped sketch. I have to appreciate that she broke character in a taped sketch. Yeah, Leslie Jones, she's pioneering a, a new way in terms of SNL cast members. But yeah, between like the the Wesley Snipes and the uh, Keaton as OJ, there were just a couple times where they were like, hey, isn't it funny what these if these people auditioned back in a time before they became infamous for other things? Yeah, and like Jaleel White. Did, did Jaleel White really need to be in there? Yeah, I appreciate he does that. I appreciate he does that impression, but there was no reason for it to be in this sketch. And also, uh, hi Luke Knoll. This is the Luke Knoll part of the episode where he does a, a serviceable Eddie Vedder. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I love Luke Knoll. I wish they'd use him more, but yeah, he was. Here's his uh, six seconds of glory in this week's episode. Well, let's move on here. Now, unfortunately, we're going to talk about our musical guest, Arcade Fire. Uh, our musical correspondent, Will from America, was not able to watch the episode before he sent in his take. So he'll be missed this episode. But suffice it to say, Arcade Fire 
extremely interesting performance. As we talked about last time, I believe this is their fourth time on the show performing Creature Comfort and Put Your Money on Me. They also make an appearance later on in the show. And as I mentioned before, a really interesting gaffe that happened where the feeds just sort of after commercial cut to the middle of the song. We had no Bill Hader introduction like we usually do. So it was one of the, the couple of technical mistakes that happened on the show. But nevertheless, despite all that, very interesting aesthetic between the fog rolling in for the first one and doing it to the point of the title in front of slot machines for the second song. Uh, did you have any sort of opinions about Arcade Fire's two songs here? I don't know much about them other than they're kind of eclectic, kind of an odd group. And so I kind of watched it. I was like, oh, that, that was kind of cool. Like, I don't know anything about them. I was I was too busy continuing to play the game New Cast Member or Arcade Fire Member. Yeah. That was <laughs> from the uh, Tina Fey. I want to say that might have been the season 40 premiere or the season 39 premiere. But, yeah, that was a really fun one back when they – for those of you that they don't remember, that's when they got the big deluge of uh, featured players when they brought in uh, – that was when they got Beck and Kyle and, like, Noel Wells – uh, mm-hmm. and you know, Tim Robinson, so they just put a, a bunch of them in, and they played a game where it was, okay, they sh- they shipped out a, a cast member, and they said, okay, is this a new cast member, or is this a member <laughs> of Arcade Fire? And that was a really fun sketch. Yeah, I found that distracting during the performance, because I was trying to catch Kyle Milhauser back there. Milhauser. <laughs> yeah, from what I remember, uh, oh my god, yes, I totally forgot about that guy. Uh, <laughs> and I also remember that, you know, Arcade Fire has made an interesting sort of name for themselves in the community recently because I remember them w- very surprisingly winning the Grammy for Best Album, I think, back in 2011. So I think it's become sort of a popular adage in the music community that, like, oh, it's it's cool to sort of hate on Arcade Fire, but they put out some really interesting performances. I mean, they were something to look at, and so I can't, you know, disparage a performance too much on SNL for, for providing really interesting visuals. Yeah, I mean, I didn't hate what I heard. It was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. It's a lot different than other musical acts you hear on SNL these days. So I I appreciate them taking a little chance on a group like this out there. So let's move on to Weekend Update here. And I will say I loved this Weekend Update. It it was a little slow to start. You know, they wanted to get all the, you know, the the firing stuff. They wanted to get that done. Those jokes weren't the strongest. But I feel like once they got into it, and all the correspondence, to me, just, they were firing on all c- cylinders, far and above my favorite part of the episode. Yeah, I would say the same thing. My favorite sketch was the Irish dating show. My favorite part of the episode was Weekend Update. And again, it was, you know, Michael Shea was great, but Colin Jost was just reeling off hit jokes one after another towards the end. He was fantastic. Yeah, my favorite might have been, you know, uh, when he sort of rants about the fact that, you know, all these news outlets are sort of hinting towards larger things happening. He said, you know, I'll tell you what I told my high school girlfriend. I'm totally fine waiting, but then you've got to stop rubbing the outside of my pants. <laughs> that was that got such a great reaction from the crowd. Like he had to stop for an applause break and tell him to pull up his hand to get him to calm down. That was that was such a great line. I love the one about uh a rare piece of good news for people who own multiple Snuggies. That was a good yes. one. I like I like the robot bees. Like, what the hell is Walmart? They're making robot bees now? <laughs> I loved um, when they were talking about Taco Bell making the uh, strawberry Skittle freeze. He said, you know, Mexican food, just like Mi Abuela made. Like, that's Colin totally <laughs> steering into the curve of him coming off his white bread. And I will say, uh, Che had some good things in here, too. I loved the bait and switch of him saying, Oh, this week was national had national walkout day. Oh, wait, that image is wrong, and then it changes to an image of uh, Donald Trump Jr. and his <laughs> wife, and then he punctuates that with like, you know what we do here, right? 
Yeah, he had he later he had the joke about uh, baseball, the baseball, the Houston Astros visiting Trump, which is ironic because baseball is the one industry where immigrants really are taking our jobs. And it got a hiss from the audience. Yeah. And that killed me because his joke was completely accurate. That's exactly what's going on in baseball that they that I mean, that's anybody that knows anything about baseball is that you you when these scouts want to want to get these kids out of high school and college, these kids have agents in America and they want like a six thousand six million dollar signing bonus. And so the teams are like, well, we'll go down to the Dominican Republic and we'll get 20 kids for that same price, which is true. That literally is what's happening. And it's funny that the audience hissed at that and Shay kind of had a weird reaction on his face. Like, what, I got hissed for that one? That's true. Yeah, exactly. So let's move into our correspondence here. Let's start with Betsy De- Betsy Davos, uh, played by Kate McKinnon after her sit down on 60 Minutes, which suffice it to say, did not go too well. Maybe this was like a breath of fresh air just because, again, we've seen so much of Kate Dumuller and have her do Jeff Sessions. But I feel like both the writing and the performance here was absolutely top notch. Yeah, I agree. And I don't even really like I said, I don't really follow the news, especially political stuff. So I don't watch 60 Minutes and stuff. But even if you don't know who Betsy DeVos is or know her story, that was a great uh, correspondent piece. Like Kate was so good in that. And some of the lines were so strong. And there was the one line that I guess I've been saying ever since I watched the episode last night. Oh, I did a fudge. <laughs> Which, I just love that line. It's like, there, there's yeah, like you said, good writing and good uh, performance. And it came after, uh, speaking another hiss moment when she said, you know, I love doing worksheets with blacks and the occasionally stinky poor whites. <laughs> like, the audience... Oh, man, like that was one of those things like, like oh, that's that still hits a little too uh, close to home. But there are so many fun things, starting with her saying, you know, I think the problem is the words coming out of my mouth were bad. And that's because they were coming from my brain. And just her matter of fact, this was all the stuff talking about a uh, crocodile crossing guards in Florida and in North Carolina. Stop being trans. Uh, which, again, just sort of, like, got slipped in there, but definitely caught the audience off guard. Uh, but then her talking about with the idea of, you know, putting weapons in school, this idea that every, in case two Home Alone-esque intruders came into the school, every school should have the option of a red-hot doorknob and a paint can swinging down a staircase. <laughs> yeah, I have nothing bad to say about that. That was a classic Kate piece, and she's amazing, and I love this one. Well, let's go on to Pete Davidson here. Now, Pete Davidson has sort of turned over a new leaf or gone in a new direction with his uh, with his uh, appearances here on Weekend Update. When when he came on during the Chance the Rapper episode, I remember really talking up his appearance a lot because it was very personal. Here, he really goes into it. Uh, this Talking primarily about uh, basketball player Kevin Love, writing about uh, one time he had a panic attack when he was uh, playing a basketball game. That sort of opened his eyes as to mental health issues. And essentially, Pete's point of view here is, you know, leave it to the big boys. And this was brutally honest, Mario, but I loved it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. This is Pete's new shtick, apparently, that I'm the crazy one. And I love it. And again, as someone I'm not going to get too far into it, but I've been through mental health issues myself. I do anxiety counseling people. I've been through I've been through health anxiety really badly where it like takes over your life. So I get this stuff. And really, the proper way to deal with really bad health anxiety is to just mock the crap out of it and go as dark in your humor as possible. So I appreciate the therapy aspect that Pete does here. And some of the lines were just great. Like, the whole rant about, you know, with the uncle, like, oh, his uncle is a beach boy. You know, he's the worst one, but it's still sick. And like, and then my uncle like yelled at me on a camping trip and then my dad yelled at him and then my dad died. And, like that is such wonderful, dark, therapeutic humor that I just appreciate. So, yeah, I laughed the entire way through this. This 
may have been my favorite part of my favorite part of the episode. Pete's commentary on update. It was I just love what he's doing with this now. And especially at the end of that rant about the uncle, like, oh, yeah, then, like, my mom didn't want to say anything because she knew my dad get angry, and then a week later, my dad died. But again, <laughs> sorry about your free throw percentage! Yeah. <laughs> and then he even ends with, you know, I, I, I forget what he says, but, you know, I'm on a ton of Klonopin right now, which is funny because that literally is, that's the that's the panic attack drug that I've been on in the past. So if you're to the point where you're joking about this on national TV, you're probably doing pretty well with it. So that's, I, I again, I... On a comedic level, I love this, but just on a uh, as someone who's gone through some stuff and had some demons in his life, I appreciate that Pete is going with going with this now. Yeah, and it was so much fun because it was such a unique point of view as well. And I love that he had to pepper in throughout, like, "Look, he's a great guy." Like, I I have to say that because they'll get mad at me if I don't. <laughs> I just thought yeah. he really walked a great line. He stayed in his line, lane despite, like you said, he's on a shit ton of clonopin and uh, had a problem <laughs> probably veering out of said lane. Yeah, let's. Uh... No, Kevin Love, let's leave it to the big boys on this one. <laughs> well, let's move on to Stefan, because Mario, I know that you told me before we came on here that you have a probably unpopular opinion about Stefan. Yeah, see, this is where I get hissed as much as Michael Shea did after the immigrants taking the baseball job jokes. I I think Stefan's funny. I've never thought it's one of the better things on SNL. And I'll even go so far as to say that like, there's no... There's no art behind this character, and that's what always kind of bothers me about it. Like, you have a character, you have an actor, Bill Hader, who notoriously just breaks at everything. So the premise is we'll put him out there, and we'll basically have him do a cold read of a sketch for the first time. He's reading a sketch as if he's sitting at the table and doing a table read, and we're just going to get Bill Hader to break on TV, which is funny, but it's really the same thing that I would say about Horace, is that... I always feel cheap when I laugh at stuff like that because there's no art behind it. It's really like anybody could do that. You could write any funny lines up there. And if you know Hater's sense of humor, you're going to get him to break on TV. And that's the whole point of the sketch is watching him break. That's what the audience is waiting for. So, again, I I appreciate that people like the sketch. And it is funny. I will admit that. But it's it's always the type of stuff I wish SNL didn't get famous for because it seems very unprofessional to me. And that's. I guess that's the end of my rant, and now I will be booed off the stage by the Legion of Stefan fans. Stay in your lane, Mario. Yeah, I, <laughs> I personally love Stefan, and it's not even just the breaking, though I think that goes back to, again, what I was saying with the Horace sketch, that there is sort of this live wire energy to it that makes it very exciting. But I feel like the writing is so absurd, so strange, and so incredible. And I might be biased because uh, they're almost always written by John Mulaney, who makes an appearance here, who might just be one of my favorite comedians out there today. But, God, there's there was just so many fun things in here, in my opinion. If we start with Goosh and how it has a troubling feeling, like when Larry King plays himself in a movie, I think what I love about these sketches are just the specific absurdity that come with each and everything, like... The idea of the stranger, which is where you sit on Billy Joel's hand until it's numb and then rub yourself with it. And you do that so you can pretend that it's Bruce Springsteen's hand. Yeah, I'll give you that one. I like that one. He, I, I love the offhanded thing that he refers to Michael Che and Colin Jost as Moonlight and La La Land. <laughs> that was a, a random one. I think uh, Off to Church Mother might have been my favorite. It's uh, in the clogged heart of the Bronx at the corner of 3000 Street and Gary Marshall Memorial Drive at the site of Vern Troyer's 2004 wedding uh, with some nice Farrakhans, which are leprechauns that are dressed like Farrah Fawcett. And of course, we have the runner of Roman J. Israel. I think um, I'm trying to remember who it was 
Uh, it was Dan something, the MTV VJ from the last time he was on. But I'm glad to keep going with that. What did you think about the drop-in as of John Mulaney as uh, Stefan's lawyer slash conceptual piss artist to advise him not to say midget? It would be hard for me to follow up that introduction with anything but glorious praise, but I didn't actually know who John Mulaney was. Like, I had to ask my wife, who is that? Like, I had to look it up. So I'm not good with visual uh, identification of random cameos. I would say that, you know, I wish there was more done with it, but I'm glad that he made an appearance again since he's someone who has done all of these. So I'm happy he got some recognition. And it did seem like at least some of the audience recognized it, though, to your point, he definitely seems like, you know, he had his failed Fox sitcom and he's done, you know, oh, hello with uh, with uh, with Nick Kroll. But other than that, maybe he is one of the less recognizable people. I thought we were going to get a, another celebrity cameo to come in, sort of like what they usually do with like, oh, here's drunk uncle's drunker uncle. Uh, so I'm happy that we didn't go in that direction, at least. Yeah, and again, I, I'd be a hypocrite if I said the writing and Stefan isn't funny. I, I like the jokes that are coming out, and if you listen to them, they're they're fantastic. But I don't think the audience is listening to that. I think they're just watching him, waiting for him to break. That's that's mm-hmm. my whole argument with Stefan. That I agree. I think the writing is great, but I don't think that's what the audience is watching it for. And I will say that I really like the last line where he does like a Seth Meyers as closer look, and they say, you know, doesn't Seth usually do that? And he goes, oh, Seth and I are versatile. Some nights I do it, and some nights he's under the desk. I thought that was just <laughs> a nice like capper right at the end of it. So I was happy to see Stefan back. Uh, I thought, you know, I'm I'm all even though as he talked about before, Rich sort of used the term Mad Libs to describe some of these recurring sketches where all they do is just take the same formula and repeat it endlessly. This is one that for me personally will never get old. You know. 99% of the SNL audience will agree with you, so I will begrudgingly just go sit in my little uh, bah humbug corner here. And Although, before we leave update, I will leave us with one thought. Mike, are you prepared to see Donald Trump tear up some ass? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't, like, what if he's good at it? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was a wonderful line I skipped over earlier. I love that one. Well, let's, uh, let's maybe decompress from all the zaniness of Weekend Update. Let's go to the Spirit Quest Lodge as we get a glimpse of Roger the Reiki Healer who got abducted by aliens. This was probably my least favorite sketch just because this felt like another excuse for Bill Hader to do like a weird Scandinavian-esque voice, and there really wasn't a lot to it here. Yeah, I agree that I have almost no notes about this episode. And it's funny, the only notes I have aren't even about this episode is that I was I was when you're watching this sketch, this sketch was a, I think, absolute bomb. Like there was there was nothing going on that was really worth watching or talking about. But the audience was still laughing at some of the jokes and stuff like. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And it, may, it was it was just striking because just the other day I was watching a bunch of old clips on SNL on uh, NBC.com from like 1980, 81, the Gene Dominion year, the Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. stuff. And the audience is just dead during those sketches, even though sometimes there's actually funny stuff happening, but the audience, like, there's no audible reaction from them whatsoever. And it just makes me realize how much more generous a modern audience is on SNL, that even if stuff isn't working, you still get lots of laughs and titters through the audience. And I'm just wondering if that's a cultural thing, if, like, Lorne Michaels prods them, if there's, like, little electric prods under the seat that make them laugh every once in a while. It's just very striking that you don't see the dead audience in a, in a modern sketch that you would have in the old one, because this one, this one deserved the dead audience. That's what I would say about it. Well, maybe that's because maybe that's why Gene got fired is because they said you're not making the audience laugh enough. But uh, to your point, I think it, it is interesting because I've been watching some old school clips and episodes as well, and I do agree. I would say the audience is more conservative with their laughter. It might be a thing where I feel like SNL is all about like 
pumping the audience up. And a lot of shows are about pumping the audience up these days. So I can imagine that like they really want to keep the energy, the high energy in the audience because they really want that to carry over to the TV. Whereas maybe 30 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the, the main point in, uh, you know, keeping the audience energy high. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. I think it's really just a they get that energy going at the start of the show. They got the what Shay does the warm up. Michael Shay, I think, does the warm up so, of yeah. the crowd. Yeah, and it's just a big high energy to the end of the show, and then at the end of the good nights, everybody gives them a standing ovation. It's just kind of a thing. But yeah, if there's ever a sketch that didn't deserve the loud laughter and titter, it was probably this one. And it's funny because I've read some uh, re- uh, reviews of last night's episode where people really liked this sketch because this is a follow up to one from uh, last time Hater hosted, correct? Uh, I think it might have been actually one from the Bruno Mars ah, episode, that was maybe? It. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those I don't remember liking that one either. So, good, we have follow-up. It's uh, Here's some crap to follow up crap. Yeah, the <laughs> sequel that nobody asked for. Uh, but yeah. for what it's worth, I feel like it was at least fairly short. You know, they get Roger in here. He talks about his alien abduction experience. Then the couple sits down uh, and doesn't realize that behind them, you know, Kyle Mooney's character gets taken, and then Bill Hader gets his child delivered to him before the aliens leave him. Yeah, fantastic. Touching. It brought a tear to my eye. Well, let's talk about another sketch that I thought, post-update sketch that I thought was super quick. Uh, So we have Thomas Logan here. So I guess this is a a Canadian take on the Me Too movement. He's called the Canadian Harvey Weinstein. And the joke is that, again, we're painting a very broad brush about Canada that, hey, Canadians are so polite that even when they sexually harass, it's not that bad. Well, yeah, and it's not even really sexual harassment. It's just him being forward. That, I yeah. guess that's the joke is that Canadians don't even have the capacity to break the uh, break the seal of sexual harassment. They just are a little bit forward sometimes. This one didn't really pick up for me until we got uh, Bill and Heidi Gardner and they tell this story about how, you know, I told her that her sweater looked nice and she said that was forward. So then I, I said that I was sorry and then I went to the HR person and then I resigned and then she resigned and then Heidi's character resigns. Like, I feel like that's a perfect escalation. Yeah, I mean that part of the sketch was fun. I didn't hate the sketch. It was it had a nice little uh, premise and a little purpose, and it didn't overstay its welcome. And then for some reason, I guess we had to get Arcade Fire out there. I didn't know they were Canadian, but okay. So and then yeah, they're all just sorry, sorry, sorry. And then the last one says drums. They're like, no, we're saying sorry. Oh, sorry. Which again, that was kind of a subtle joke that I appreciated. But yeah, this was a nice. It wasn't one of these sketches you're going to remember in ten years, but it was. It, it killed some couple minutes on the show, and it was funny. Yeah, and I liked uh, also the transition shots of, like, this person posing with all these Canadian celebrities like Ryan Gosling and Mike Myers with Bill's face very clearly photoshopped on. Yeah. Mike Myers cameo. Mike Myers got more airtime than Luke Knoll tonight. Oh, man, yeah. that's uh, We should make a, a counter from now on of, like, which random celebrities and alumni will get more airtime than, uh, than Luke Knoll in any episode. I also liked... When they listed off the movies, I did like Dave, the Dave Thomas story starring Dave Foley. Yeah. You know, what's what's funny is I actually emailed Mike Byers if he had any comment about uh, appearing in the sketch and getting more airtime than Luke Knoll. He said sorry. So he actually he steered right into the curve there. Uh, I say he's apologizing about unintentionally getting more airtime than the featured player. He was a featured player once upon a time, so he knows the experience. Yes, he's been there. Well, let's uh, finish things off here with a commercial for Undercover Office Toilet. And I'll admit, this one started off like, you know, sometimes with potty humor, quite literally potty humor, it can be tough to sort of get people on your side. But the commitment from all of the actors in this sketch <laughs> just really made it for me. Yeah, the escalation. And that's, I mean, Beck was there, Kyle was there. You know they had a hand in this one where it's just a stupid premise that really would have fit in with the 
Maya Rudolph, Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig era real well. And then then it starts escalating and getting darker and darker when he has the oversized novelty tape machine. And like Hader will just walk in and pick up the lid and see that he pooped in there. Oh my God, this too. Like I, I appreciated this one. This was one of my favorite bits of the evening. And I, I almost always love these 10 to 1 sketches because they're just mm-hmm. uh, conceptual and experimental. They can do stuff that they wouldn't normally do in a in a sketch before update. So yeah, this was... Again, it wasn't the best ten to one sketch ever, but it was funny, and this is one that you probably laughed at. And again, you may have you may have felt cheap afterwards after laughing at it, but it's the one that I liked. Yeah, I, I liked the way it went too. It sort of took us in a different direction, where you know, first Cecily's character introduces undercover office toilet, and he uses it, and you're like, okay, where's this going? And then Kyle's character walks in, and we just have this visual of about seven lamps on the desk. <laughs> we're just saying, why do you have so many lamps on your desk? He's like, oh, I like lamps. And he goes. What's that smell? And then Beck just tries to sell smells like regular lamps to me. Uh, and this, I just loved Beck's character getting like slowly more and more, I don't know, frazzled about this. I, like trying not to get found out, and all these characters coming in and realizing that he pooped in the lamp, and then them bringing, as you said, uh, undercover office potty disguise supplies, which are oversized <laughs> tape dispenser and a stapler. And they're like, "Why do you have giant's office supplies on your desk?" And they, I love that they were all the straight men, and they immediately call him out on now pooping in his office supplies. Yeah, and haters getting furious, and him and uh, uh, Beck are just screaming at each other. And I just one of the one of the things that I mentioned earlier in the episode to tie this all up. There's a difference here between a performer's sketch and a writer's sketch. This is very much a writer's sketch. It's just conceptually just going darker and darker and darker. Contrast that with the Horace the old man sketch, which is funny, but is a performer's sketch very much. It's just one thing, and they're just going to improvise it out there. So that's the difference to me that a writer's versus a performer's sketch. And a again, as a comedy writer, you know which one I will always favor. Quick note on the good nights here. Uh, so as I mentioned before, John Hamm randomly shows up. I guess he was just sort of around the studio or maybe he was off of a shift at Ham and Bubbly uh, and kept Michael Buble, unfortunately, in the kitchen to make a drop in here. John Goodman, unfortunately, did not stay through after the cold open, but John Mulaney did. On another note, uh, Mario, did you see the cut for time sketch that was posted online after this episode? I read about it. It's the one where it's the holidays, Bill Hader for the yeah. holidays, right? Yeah, I didn't see it, but I did, just I know it's very much in the vein of the C. Buscemi one and that that ilk. Did you watch it? I did. So yeah, this is a take on, I think uh, Edward Norton was the first to do it with the Halloween one, which I really enjoyed just how weird it was. But yeah, Bill did a just, he sat in a chair and talked about St. Patrick's Day. It's so absurd, but I personally really enjoyed it. It's totally my style of humor. As an example, uh, he talks about, I have some corned beef here. Uh, I ran out, so I made some myself, and it was just a corn cob taped to a burger. Uh, (laughs) He talks about how uh, he makes uh, his own shamrock shakes by leaving a glass of milk out in the sun for a week. (laughs) And then he takes a sip and says, "Mm, not ready yet. Uh, This was all delightfully absurd. He has this complete straight face to it all. Uh, But... I can understand why it was cut for time. I would prefer this above something like the Spirit Quest Lodge, but yeah. I encourage people to go check it out because if you liked the Steve Buscemi one and if you liked the Edward Norton one, it was totally on the same level, including Beck on the side as like a strangely child, childish acting uh, leprechaun boy. Yeah, and it's one of those things like if you watch the show, I've already watched this episode three times. I was trying to take some good notes for this one, but... Weekend update is so long. It's really long. It's like a lot of jokes. There's three long commentaries that you can kind of see how they ran out of time in the second half of the show where this this would have been a great one, like you said, to replace Sacred Rock, which is the one I just didn't like at all. But yeah, Sacred Rock is very truncated. CBC NewsHour is very truncated. And that's why, just because update really cut into their uh, their time. And and I'm so glad that you finally mentioned the good nights. We haven't really delved into the good nights, as I know many people like to do. 
you got to scratch that itch eventually after it's been itching us for the entire week of March. Speaking of March, that's going to do it for this month of SNL. Uh, We'll be back in three weeks, I believe, on April 7th to cover uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, Black Panther himself hosting with musical guest Cardi B. Do you have knowledge of any of these two people, Mario? I've heard of the name Chadwick Boseman. And no, no, it's I, I, I am aware of who he is. I I don't know much about does he really do comedy much or anything? What's his background? Yeah, so Chadwick Boseman, again, he's most prominently known nowadays for playing Black Panther, but he actually built a name for himself uh, doing a bunch of biopics. So he played Jackie Robinson in 42. Ah. He played James Brown in Get On Up. So he seems sort of like a chameleon. So I'll be excited to see sort of what he does in that regard. Oh. Okay, yeah, I know 42. That's a fantastic movie where he plays Jackie Robinson. It's one of these great underrated sports movies. So I didn't realize he was Jackie. Yeah, okay, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do here then. If he's a chameleon, he will do very well on this show. And uh, Cardi B is obviously a rapper who has brought a notable name to herself through a variety of different means. So I'll be excited to hear what Wolf from America's take on uh, her. But yeah, interesting that we've had between Chadwick Boseman and Sterling K. Brown, uh, two Black Panther cast members in the course of three episodes. I'm I'm excited for that because, again, if Sterling K. Brown's any indication, uh, hopefully the Black Panther cast just brings a buttload of humor to it. But I'm excited. I feel like between Sterling K. Brown and Bill Hader, you know, uh, Charles Barkley wasn't so great, but like, the Will Ferrell episode, Jessica Chastain, Sam Rockwell, the Natalie Portman stuff. I feel like SNL in 2018 has been putting out some pretty good episodes, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say the last few episodes, I don't I don't know if it's like a, a fantastic run of episodes, but it's stronger than they were doing earlier in the season, and it's exactly. stronger than I think than they did last season. And again, we're kind of moving away from Alec Baldwin just taking over every show as Trump, and I think that's clearly a correlation there between quality getting better without him there. So... Yeah, I think it's uh, been a strong stretch of episodes. And again, with uh, the best, you know, if we're excited about these hosts, you got, you know, Sterling K. Brown and Charles Barkley and and, uh, Chadwick Boseman. I mean, Betsy DeVos should be very excited that she gets to work with them. Oh, yes. Hopefully she won't (laughs) fudge anything up there. Uh, Well, Mario, thanks so much for coming on and offering your opinions as per usual. How can people follow you on social media and uh, what have you been working on? Okay, the big thing, again, I keep saying it, I have this new uh, movie podcast called Staff Picks where I use my ungodly amount of uh, knowledge of movie minutia over the years and all these ridiculously obscure movies I know to introduce the world to all these movies that I think are obscure or underloved or underrated. And again, you can get there at staffpicks.podbean.com. I've been uh, cranking out episodes pretty regularly, and I think they're all especially funny where sometimes we just devolve into basically like a Chris Farley show. Hey, you remember this joke? You remember that? That was awesome. Like my uh, friend Liana Boris did that in the last episode about basketball where we just started giggling like the last half hour. So again, check out Staff Picks. I'm really proud of that podcast. And you can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And if you want to read any of my writings about Survivor or uh, SNL or Mystery Science Theater, my other show, you can go to funny115.com. That's kind of my flagship website. You can always follow me on Twitter at a Mike Bloom type. Check out all the other reality TV podcasts and exit interviews that I'm doing there. But that's going to do it for this week on SNL Funhouse. We'll be back in a few weeks in April to talk about the Chadwick Boseman episode. And we'll see maybe a couple of episodes after that. I think we only have about five or so episodes left of the season. But I'm having so much fun getting to talk about this with you, Mario. Thanks, as always, for coming on. Thank you to Will from America in absentia. But follow him at Will from America to get his takes on everything SNL and music-wise. That's going to do it for this week on SNL Funhouse. Thank you all so, so much for listening. We'll talk to you guys next month. But for now, take care. Bye-bye.